few weeks ago, uh, a young woman and I were in a dialogue on the City Church Facebook page about the series that we're in right now. And in response to one of the things that I said, she, she wrote this. Uh, put it up here on the screens for you guys to see. She said, I, I do not believe any religion was founded on anything higher than one group of humans looking for a way to oppress another. Her comment represents a very common objection, not only to religion in general, but also to Christianity specifically. And as you may know, we're, you know, we're in a series right now, it's called I Have My Doubts, and we're dealing each week with a common doubt or a common objection that uh, people in our culture have about uh, the existence of God and about Christianity. And we've dealt so far with exclusivity and also with the problem, as I said, of evil and suffering, which didn't go away after we talked about that, as I said earlier. Uh, This week, I want to consider the doubt that is expressed in this woman's Facebook post. And it has to do with the idea of absolute truth. Christians believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth, and that as it pertains to matters of faith, it's recorded in the Bible. But that's not a popular notion. In, in our culture, we live in, somebody, William Willimon, uh, who's a chaplain at Duke University, describes our culture in this way. He says that it's an expressive, individualistic culture. And the prevailing sentiment in this culture is that each of us has to discover our own truth and that any attempt to define universal absolute truths is oppressive because it undermines freedom. What she was saying in that Facebook post is exactly what our culture thinks about this. In other words, absolute truth, they would say, is the enemy of freedom. So the question is, how do we respond to that doubt? How do we, uh, what do we say to people who have that objection to Christianity? That's what we want to talk about today. And if you have a Bible, and I know you do, because you've been buying some Bibles, you've been downloading Bibles, whatever, because we're bringing them to church. Why do we bring Bibles to church? Well, because it's as natural as taking soap to a shower or marshmallows to a campfire, you bring a Bible to church. And I've been challenging you to do that. Turn in those new Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians uh, chapter 2. And then we'll start reading there in just a minute. I've been, uh, I have been challenging you guys, bring a Bible to church. If you're a regular here, you need to bring a Bible to church so you can take notes, make notes of things that are said. Somebody asked me last week, what version of the Bible do I use? I use uh, the New International Version of the Bible. There are many good versions. I use the NIV. It's based on the best Greek manuscripts available to us. Uh, And I think the the translation is very readable, so that's the one I use, but there are many other good versions out there. If you want to follow with me, though, use the NIV. Okay, Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to start reading at uh, verse 4. Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. This matter, now I'm going to explain to you what this matter was in just a moment, but this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for us. Now, I want you to understand that in this passage that we're going to be looking at today, uh, Paul is explaining a big theological brouhaha that he found himself in. And you might be surprised by what this theological brouhaha was about. It was about circumcision. Circumcision. 
And you're probably, like, if you don't know much about the Bible and much about Christianity, you're probably like, circumcision, what in the world does circumcision have to do with Christianity? Well, let me try to explain why this is in here. Okay, you might not know that the earliest Christians were Jewish. The Jews, of course, observed the Mosaic uh, ceremonial law, you know, the ritual codes of what they could what they could eat and what they could wear. And believe it or not, circumcision was part of that code. God had commanded that Jewish baby boys be circumcised. He'd also commanded that adult converts to Judaism uh, be circumcised as well. Now, why would God command that? Well, back in the Old Testament, in fact, back in the very first book of the Bible, after, after the fall of Adam and Eve and after the world as it was designed to be was you know, kind of thrown into chaos. God makes a covenant, a promise to this guy named Abraham that one of Abraham's seed, one of his descendants, would, would rescue the world. And of course, who is that? Well, that's Jesus that he was talking about, right? But he says, he says that, that one of Abraham's seed is going to rescue the world. Circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh of the male anatomy, demonstrated that God's people put no trust in the flesh and that God's plan to rescue the world wouldn't be the work of human flesh, but it would be God's work alone. That's what circumcision symbolized. So so it was a profoundly symbolic act of trust in God's grace way back in the Old Testament. Okay, Now that's now, that doesn't have anything to do with why baby boys today are circumcised, but it is why Jews were then and are now circumcised. But Gentiles back then were not circumcised. And so when Paul started to preach to the Gentiles, um, many of those people were converted. And this question arose, do Gentiles have to be circumcised to be saved? And Paul's answer to that was unequivocally no. He, you know, he was like, no, Jesus fulfilled, uh, he fulfilled all of the Mosaic law. All that Gentiles need to do to be saved is to believe. Not to believe plus be circumcised. All they have to do is believe. But there was controversy over this because as Paul says in this passage, there were false believers who were telling on him, And in the following verses, we're not going to read all of them today, but in the following verses, Paul tells about how he got called into what amounted to the home office of Christianity uh, in Jerusalem. Does that surprise you that the home office of Christianity was in Jerusalem? It's interesting, isn't it? Okay. Gets called there for this big meeting to discuss theologically whether Gentiles had to be circumcised or not. And in the end, everyone there came to agree that Paul was right. They came to agree that Jesus had so fulfilled all of the ceremonial law, all of the rituals, all of the sacrifices, all the priests, all the temples, you know, the dietary laws, all of that stuff, Jesus had so fulfilled all of that that all of that was now obsolete in Christ. Okay, so that's the context of this passage. That's the matter that Paul talks about in this, in this verse, Okay. And you have to understand that to get what's going to happen in this passage in just a few moments. But here's what I want to do. I just want to stop for a moment. And I want you again to notice something that Paul says very important in these verses as it relates to truth and freedom. 
Okay, look again at what he says in verse 4. He says, This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on, and now I've emphasized so that you can understand what he's saying, to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ and to make us slaves. Underline that word slaves or circle it or, or uh, highlight it or whatever you have to do because that's important. It's going to come back later on. He says, the freedom that we have in Christ and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them a moment. And then he says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Okay, so as it relates to the issue of truth and freedom, here's what I want you to get. Let me paraphrase what Paul is saying in a way that I think you'll remember. The truth of the gospel, Paul is saying, will set you free. The truth of the gospel will set you free. Now, understand something. Paul isn't saying the truth of the gospel will set Christians free. He's saying the truth of the gospel would set everybody free. It applies to everybody. The truth of the gospel will set you free. Because of, you know, we have freedom in Christ because of the truth of the gospel. Now, again, okay, as it relates to the issue of absolute truth and how people think that truth oppresses freedom, that it erodes freedom... This is what Paul is saying is completely the opposite of the way that we think in our culture, right? We tend to think in our expressive individualistic culture that truth is oppressive, that it erodes, erodes freedom. Think about what the woman wrote in, uh, to the City Church Facebook page. She said that she saw religion as oppressive, that it was nothing more than a way to get over on someone else. It's just a method of control. Now, I don't want to dismiss her objection very quickly because I think, in general, she's right. Most truth claims are power plays. And if you think about it, that's exactly uh, the complaint that Jesus had about the Pharisees. Their truth claims were a way of getting power. Their truth claims were ways of justifying themselves and justifying their group and trying to get control over God and trying to get control over other people. That's exactly what Jesus was saying about the Pharisees. So in general, she's right. But even though truth claims are often power plays, it is not true that all truth claims all the time are power plays. Think about now. Just think about this with me for just a moment. Those of you who may think that that truth is oppressive, that it erodes freedom, I just think about this with me for a moment. Okay, if you say all truth claims are power plays, what have you just made? You've just made a truth claim. Was that a power play? Well, of course it was a power play. To say that no one should make truth claims because that's just a power play, well, guess what? That's the biggest power play of all because that gives you a great big needle that you can go bust everybody's balloon with, right? And the problem is you ought to bust your own balloon too because guess what? Everybody makes truth claims. You have to make a truth claim. Here's the thing. Understand this. It's not making a truth claim that leads to oppression necessarily. Okay? It's what's in the truth claim 
that determines whether it leads to oppression or whether it leads to freedom. Now, let me make sure you understand that. It's not making a truth claim that leads to oppression. It is the, it, it's what's in the truth claim that determines whether it leads to oppression or to freedom. Now, let me give you an example of that. Yesterday, one of the people that I follow on Twitter, uh, in fact, I, you know, it's like the first thing I do you know, when I wake up, I don't even get out of bed. I just, I just lay there and I look at all the Twitter feed stuff you know, that I've got from overnight and stuff. One of the people that I follow on Twitter retweeted a picture that ISIS had, uh, had put on the internet, had published. And it was of ISIS soldiers throwing a man that they believed to be gay off of a building to his death. Maybe some of you saw this. And it made me sick to see. I mean, it was, you know, obviously. It's cruel. It's inhumane. It's absolutely evil. I mean, it just made me sick, right? On the other hand, I think it's fair to say that the Bible does include homosexuality as one of the many varieties of sexual sin. But no one who understands the gospel would ever find support for such an act of evil against another person. A good friend of mine, for many, many years, uh, died this past year. He was an elder in my previous church. Many years ago, there was a man in our church who had he'd lost his wife and even his relationship with his kids because of his struggles with homosexuality. As the man lay in a hospital a few years later, dying of AIDS, my friend Bill sat with him in his room uh, day after day, even holding his bedpan for him as he vomited up what little he had in his stomach, you know, on any given day. Holding his bedpan for him. One religious group kills gays. Another religious man served a gay man. Why the difference? It's because of what's in the truth claim with Christianity and Islam. Islam argues that to be saved, you have to believe in the prophet Muhammad and obey his code of conduct or you're not a good Muslim and will not be slaved. That leads... Uh, excuse me, and will not be saved. Okay, so they have to, let me, I I screwed that up. Let me say that again. Islam argues that to be saved, you must believe in the the prophet uh, Muhammad and obey his code of conduct. Or you're not a good Muslim and you will not be saved. Okay, that's their argument. But what that leads to is self-righteous, oppressive, murderous behavior. Now look, it's not, just, it's, not, it's not just Muslims that experience that. Think about the Apostle Paul before he was converted. I mean, he, was, he was a Jew, believed that you had to believe in God and that you had to follow the Mosaic Law. And what does the Bible say about him? It says that he was a, he was a guy that, that was in a rage, that he ran around, that he, he breathed murderous threats to people who had converted to Christianity. Okay? So, so that kind of belief system leads to Uh, self-righteousness, it it leads to oppression, it leads to murderous behavior. On the other hand, at the heart of Christianity is a man dying on the cross for people who could never perfectly obey the Mosaic Code of Conduct, whose last breath 
is used to bless the people who are murdering him and to pray for for their forgiveness. And look, if you take that into the center of your life, then you experience not oppression, nor do you want to oppress anyone else. You experience a newfound freedom to serve people with whom you disagree, to forgive people who hurt you, to accept people who, like you, are very imperfect people. You see, it's not truth claims per se that erode freedom. It's what's in the truth claim that can either erode freedom or it can lead to freedom. Okay? Which leads to my next point. Here's the next point. It's not just that the truth of the gospel will set you free. Okay, we've been talking about truth for just a moment. Let's talk about, let's talk about freedom for, for just a moment. Okay? Go back to Galatians chapter 2. Remember now, Paul's describing this theological thing that he gets caught up in, and they have this discussion over circumcision, and in the end, everyone agrees that Paul is right, that the Gentiles shouldn't be required to be circumcised because Jesus has fulfilled the law. Now, I want you to skip down in Galatians chapter 2 to verse 10. And I want you to read something that's very interesting and seems to contradict what we just learned. All they asked, Paul said, the theological council that he was brought into, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. Now, okay, wait a minute. He, he, this is where it seems like he's contradicting himself. Because Paul, think about it. Paul's been fighting for the Gentiles' freedom in the gospel, but if you notice, the home office gives him a should here. You should remember the poor. Now, that feels like a reversal of everything. Isn't it a contradiction uh, to freedom to tell someone they should or they ought uh, or to put a restriction on someone. Isn't that a contradiction of freedom? Okay, I mean, you, you could tell them that it would be nice if they remembered the poor, but as soon as you say you should remember the poor or you ought to remember the poor or you must remember the poor, aren't you restricting their freedom? What would you say to that? Write this down. Here's, here's what we learn. Okay, write this down somewhere. Make a note of it in your digital version of the Bible. Whatever. Write this down. Here's what we learn. Freedom. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions. It's the presence of the right restrictions. So those of you who think, well, no, freedom means I can do anything I want, anytime I want, with whom I want, wherever I want. No, that's not freedom. That's not freedom. Freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. It's the presence of the right restrictions. Okay? The right restrictions on a person actually lead you to deeper freedoms. Now, let me explain this. You, you know who understands this point very well? Uh, lovers. Lovers understand this very well. People who are in love with another person really get this. Because if you ever want to be free to experience deep and profound love with another person, you have to undergo restrictions to your individual freedoms. Do you not? Okay? You can't just do anything you want with anyone you want at any time that you want when you have a relationship with someone, when you're in a deep, loving relationship with another person, right? You can't just do that. Like, you can't just go hang out with the guys or the girls anytime you want because the person that you love has a claim on you, 
Love puts restrictions on you. At the end of the service today, I can't just get in my car after this service and drive. Sometimes I want to do this. Sometimes I just want to get in my car and I want to drive until I get tired. But I can't just do that without saying something to my wife. Why? Because I have a commitment to her. We have a relationship. That's, you know, that's a restriction. It puts restrictions on my freedom. And yet, submitting to those restrictions frees me, frees you to experience a deeper, richer, uh, more meaningful life because of the depth of the love that, you're, that you have, right? Um, Athletes understand this. Athletes get this, that freedom isn't just the absence of restrictions. It's the presence of the right restrictions. They get it. If you want to be a great athlete, there are all sorts of restrictions you have to submit to, right? I mean, you have to practice. You've got to practice a lot. Other people are out doing other things. You've got to be in practicing. Uh, you have to restrict the kinds of food you eat and how much uh, food you eat, right? Athletes get that. But if you do that, if you submit to those restrictions... It releases you into the far richer and far deeper freedom of expressing those inherent athletic abilities that you have to your fullest potential, right? Freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. It's the presence of the right restriction. But I do want you to notice, okay, so, so freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. You get that? Everybody, everybody nod, say amen, something if you get that. Okay. Okay, because if, if you don't give me that you get that, I'm going to keep talking about it, and then we won't be out of here until noon, okay? And then you'll want to get in your car and drive as long as you can until you get time. All right, freedom isn't the absence of restrictions, but I do want you to pay attention to the second half of the point. It's, it's not just the presence of any restrictions. It's got to be the right restrictions, okay? So like, think about this, all right? What happens to a fish if you give it the wrong restrictions? Like, for instance, if you restrict a fish from the water, what happens? It'll die, okay? If you restrict it from being outside the water, it dies. But if you put a restriction on it and say, you can't be outside the water, you have to be in the water, then the fish flourishes, right? It demonstrates profound beauty and grace as it swims. It's just beautiful, okay? Freedom isn't the absence of restrictions, but it's also not the presence of restrictions, It's the presence of the right restrictions. Restrictions that are true to your nature. uh, True to who you are. If you're an athlete, restrictions help you become a greater athlete. If you're a swimmer, restrictions make you become a better swimmer. If you're a fish, restrictions can make you become, you know, can can demonstrate the beauty um, of your swimming ability as a fish. Um, If you're uh, you're a musician, restrictions can make you... uh, can give you the freedom to become the incredible musician that you are. Freedom is the presence of the right restrictions on you, okay? So I want you to understand that freedom and restrictions, freedom and truth, uh, they're not mutually exclusive, okay? Freedom is actually the presence of the right restrictions in your life. And so... Let me just kind of conclude with this, okay? Here's the last thing that I want you to get. Paul tells us that it's the truth of the gospel that will really make you free. It's the truth of the gospel, he says, will set you free. 
And I think the question that I, I you know, if, if, I'm, if I were talking to a group of people who don't, you know, believe at all in Christ and they don't believe at all in the gospel, I think the question that I, I would have to address is, okay, why the gospel? I mean, why not the truth of Islam or the truth of Mormonism or the truth of Buddhism or uh, the truth of Marxism or secular humanism? Why the truth of the gospel? Why will that set, set people free? What is it about the gospel that sets people free instead of those things? And here's what it is. It's very simply this. Unlike other religions and unlike other philosophies, write this down somewhere. The gospel is not an abstraction. The gospel is an absolute person. Okay? And I'm going to explain this in a moment. Just write this down somewhere. That the gospel is not an abstraction. The gospel is an absolute person. In other words, the gospel isn't a list of rules. It's not an abstract truth that some religious leader or some philosopher gave you and, and who says, you know, obey it and you will be saved. That's, that's not what the gospel is, okay? Now, I realize that's a surprise to some of you. Some of you think, well, the gospel is all about rules, it's all about a code of conduct. No, that is not what the gospel is about. The, at the heart of the gospel is an absolute person, not an absolute principle. And the absolute person is Jesus Christ, the one that you were created to love and to serve and to enjoy and to get to know. And that is not a concept. It's not a code. It's not an abstraction. The gospel is a person. And if you think about it, this is so different from other religions and other philosophies. In other religions, you have to obey a code of conduct to be saved. Think about it. Why do you obey a code of conduct in those other religions? What's the motive behind obeying the code of conduct? What is it? It's fear. It's fear. This is why Paul said back in verse 4, we wanted to make sure that we maintain the truth of the gospel. Those people wanted to make us slaves. If fear is your motivation, you are a slave to it. If you don't obey that code of conduct, their God in their religion is going to get you. He's going to punish you in some way. He's going to send you to hell. He's not going to answer your prayers. It's all about fear, you see, and you become a slave to fear. But in the gospel, instead of God giving you an abstract truth that you have to obey in order to save yourself, you've been given, we've been given a personal truth who comes down and lives the life that you should have lived and dies the death that you should have died and saves you by sheer grace through his death on the cross. In other words, think about this. Think about it this way. Jesus surrendered his freedom so that you wouldn't have to be a slave to fear or anything else. That's liberating. That's not oppressive. That's, that's liberating. And you see this in, uh, at the very end of the passage in a way that I think is very fitting today on the eve of the remembrance of Martin Luther King's birthday. I want you to watch this. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Uh, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, when Cephas, by the way, um, Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter, who is one of Jesus' disciples, okay? So if I say Peter, you know Cephas and Peter are interchangeable, okay? Same person, same person. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men... 
came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Notice what the text says. Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Okay. Understand something. Peter, uh, Cephas, was afraid. He agreed in principle that the Gentiles were just like everybody else. But all of his life, Peter had been told that Gentiles were dirty, dirty, dirty. That they were subhuman. Don't eat with them. Don't drink from the same water fountains. Don't sit on the bus with them. And out of fear, he starts falling back into his racist habits when these other Jews arrive. But I want you to notice something. Notice this. This is fascinating. Paul doesn't go to him and speak to him about an abstraction. Like he, he doesn't go to him and say, you're breaking rule number 12 in the Bible against racism. Uh, which he kind of could have done because there's a lot in the Bible about racism. He, but he doesn't go to it. He doesn't say, you're breaking rule number 12 in the Bible against racism. What does he say? What does he say? Look at, look at verse 14. He says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, he says, I said to Cephas, and then he explains what he said. Now here's what I want you to get. In other words, what he's saying to Peter is this. He's saying, Peter, you're not living by the truth of the gospel. You're not thinking out the implications of the gospel. Peter, you're saved by grace. You're not saved by your pedigree. You know that. I know you know that. You're a sinner. You're saved by grace. How could you possibly feel superior to anybody else, no matter their race? How could you do that, Peter? You're living like a slave. You're afraid of what those people think, the circumcision group. You're scared to death of them. You're a slave to their opinions, Peter. Think think. You are absolutely loved by God, Peter, just as you are. You shouldn't be afraid of what anyone thinks about you. If you really understood the gospel, Peter, you wouldn't be a slave to their opinions. Think, Peter, think. Think until you have enough joy and enough fullness in your heart that all of the racism in your life is squeezed out by joy. Then, Peter, you'll be free. You'll be free of fear of them. You'll be free of racism. You'll be free, Peter. You'll be free. You see, if, 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 if you understand the truth of the gospel, it frees you from everything. The truth of the gospel, it'll set you free. Are there restrictions that come with a life lived by the truth of the gospel? Of course there are. But remember, restrictions aren't mutually exclusive from freedom. The right restrictions, ones that are true to your nature, oh, those will give you great freedom. And the restrictions that come with the gospel, they are so true to your nature. You were created to love and serve and obey and enjoy and get to know the absolute person Jesus Christ. 
And so whatever comes with the gospel is true to your nature. It allows you to be more fully human. Let me tell you something. Watching those guys, those ISIS uh, soldiers, throw a gay man off of a building, that doesn't make him more human. I would argue that that is less human. My friend Bill, when he's serving a man whose lifestyle, yes, the Bible says that it is one of many sexual sins, but as my friend Bill, who believed that, as he served his friend, was he being less human or more human? I would argue he's being more human. The truth of the gospel sets you free to be more human than you are now, than you would be without restrictions in your life. There's this great line in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5. The Apostle Paul writes this, and oh man, this is such a great little phrase. He says this, he says, the love of Christ constrains us. Let me say it again. The love of Christ constrains us. Constrains us. Think about that. The love of Christ, he says, constrains us. The only thing, here's what Paul's saying, the only thing that constrains you in a way that doesn't feel oppressive, the only thing that moves you to do the things that you should be doing, and yet it feels like heaven, it doesn't feel like hell, is the love of Christ. The love of Christ, what he has done. And here's what's so ironic about this. His loss of freedom so that we could have freedom constrains us. That's what Jesus meant when he said once in John chapter 8, that the truth shall set you free. Has it set you free? Have you been freed? Do you feel more human or less human? Do you see things in your life that are making you less human, that are making you a slave? That's not the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's the first thing that we have on our banners over here. Believe. It doesn't say believe and obey. It says believe. It doesn't say believe and be baptized. It doesn't say believe and follow the Mosaic law. It doesn't say believe and don't see R-rated movies. It doesn't say believe and don't dance. It doesn't say believe and whatever. It just says believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be free indeed. Would you bow with me and let's close with a word of prayer. We are humbled, Lord Jesus, by the cross. It is the love that you demonstrated there on the cross that, constrain, that constrains us. It is not an abstraction. It is not a, a principle. It's, it's, it's not a philosophy. It's a person. It's you, Lord Jesus Christ, and what you did on the cross that constrains us. And what it constrains is the, is, the, is the flesh part of us, the part of us that would, uh, that would move us toward being subhuman. 
It constrains us. It causes us to want to be more human, to be more like you, Lord Jesus, the absolute perfect human. And we don't feel oppressed by that. We experience great freedom as a result of that. We are humbled by your act of mercy and love and sacrifice and by your freedom, excuse me, by your loss of freedom, we have been set free. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, for those that are here this morning that have never come to a place, perhaps, where they have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what you did on the cross and your resurrection, I pray that this morning you would believe them, bring them to a point that they would believe upon you, Lord Jesus, not believe and obey, but believe. And as a result of belief in you, and as a result of understanding that, they will want to become more like you. Lord, for those who already know that truth, I pray that they would experience all of the fullness and all of the joy that comes from that relationship with you. I pray that I would experience that. And that as a result of all that joy and uh, all of the fullness of heart that things like racism and other kinds of things in our lives, that those would just be squeezed out. And Lord Jesus Christ, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.